This podcast is for adults 21 years of age or older. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, come back when you are. Spoke Media. Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. On this podcast, my partner Bean and I go over some of the more fascinating points in the very, very, very long history of human beings and cannabis. Isn't that right, Bean? That is precisely what we do. And I don't know the story we're going to hear. Bean has written and researched it, and he's going to be telling it to you and to me. We're going to smoke some weed. And yeah, I'm stoked, man. What do you got for me today? Today, I've got a story for you about a very unlikely, very unheralded, very unknown weed person who's famous for other things, but has a hidden weed history that we're going to reveal today. Whoa. I always love hearing that somebody whose work I'm familiar with is a weed person because it makes you feel like, all right, you know, the world is a slightly better place because weed people tend to be pretty cool people. So I'm stoked, man. I have a joint rolled up for us right here that's ready to go. Oh, well, that that works for us. But what about if you're listening right now and you just got some butt and you didn't roll it up yet? Well, no worries. You just hit pause, get yourself situated, roll up a nice J, roll up a nice blunt, dab your dabs, and uh, we'll be right here waiting for you. Ready for another great moment in weed history. Smoke media. (sighs) All right. So I'm going to spark up this joint. Who is this mystery person that we're going to be talking about? The hero of today's great moment in weed history was born in 1832 to parents who were passionate early adopters of a philosophy that came to be called transcendentalism. Is this Buddhism? Is this like meditative practice? What is transcendentalism exactly? Yeah, transcendentalism was a sort of blend of religion and philosophy that developed in the United States uh, uh, right around this time, right around the 1820s and 30s and 40s. And it's this really interesting blend of Christian beliefs, some Hindu beliefs, and sort of they're the first kind of free-thinking, utopian, new-agey people in the U.S. And they really, uh, uh, one of the cool things is they were very into the abolitionist movement. They were also rejecting sort of authoritarian-style religion and saying, no, every person needs to understand the divine for themselves. And, And one of the things they were always promoting was the natural world. Uh, as, as a way to experience the divine, which is something that, you know, resonates with me a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. I've definitely heard of transcendentalism. I always thought of it as kind of like a modern spiritual movement. I'm pretty surprised to find out that it began actually in the 19th century, fairly early in the 19th century. Hmm, I don't know if it gives me any clues as to who this person is, yet a transcendentalist who was around... 
in the 19th century. Growing up in Concord, Massachusetts, as the second of four sisters, her family's closest friends and neighbors included Ralph Waldo Emerson, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry David Thoreau. Uh, So these are like the founding people of the Transcendental Movement. Her father was one of the founders of this movement, and their home was actually a stop on the Underground Railroad. Whoa, interesting. So really progressive people, obviously. Hmm, still not sure who it is. I guess uh, the biggest hint in there might have might have been very subtle. One of four sisters. Oh, wait a minute. So is this the author of Little Women? Yeah! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we are talking about Louisa May Alcott. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Louisa May Alcott, uh, who is who translates to the Joe March character in Little Women. Yes, all all four of the characters in the book are based on her real sisters. Parts of the book are based on her real life, not everything, and we're going to get into uh, into that. Mm-hmm. But she is definitely uh, the Joe character from that book, personified as a person, and we're going to talk about her journey to writing that book and 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 of course her weed story. Oh my God! So Louisa May Alcott <laughs> has a weed story. So that's amazing. I, I, of course, like many people, uh, I recently revisited Little Women through the Greta Gerwig movie. I can't. I can't. I've tried it and I failed. Why does everyone expect it then? Why does your family and my grandpa expect it? Why are you saying this? Say yes. Let's be happy together, Joe. I can't say yes truly, so I'm not going to say it at all. And you'll see that I'm right eventually, and you'll thank me for it. If you get a chance, you should definitely watch it. Bean and I both agree that it's it's really, really good. The film, her adaptation of Little Women, speaks directly to this idea of being a woman and being a creative person can often be really hard existence in a society that just kind of values women at a certain level. Yeah, and the film was a really interesting blend of the text of Little Women, but also elements from Louisa May Alcott's actual life. Yeah, Uh, And I thought that was kind of brilliantly done. And having already done a lot of research into her life for this episode, you can really see where the curtain gets pulled back at certain points in the film. And it, and it, it delves into her real life as an author and also just as a writer. You know, it's never been easy uh, making your money as a word farmer. Yeah, And that seriously. comes across as well. And, and, and as you say, a beautiful film. And, and uh, I enjoyed it with a nice... I, I wanted to do justice to Louisa May Alcott's weedy past. So I, I had some nice edibles for the film. And it was a wonderful journey. So despite being an ardent abolitionist who believed in absolute social equality for black people, which was an even more radical opinion at the time. There were there were many people who f- were against slavery but didn't go all the way. They were like, slavery needs to end <laughs> and we need to slide into Jim Crow. <laughs> that was the prevailing opinion. Yeah. Her father also had some pretty regressive ideas, one of which was he considered people with fair hair and blue eyes like himself, right, to be superior to people with brown hair and brown eyes, like his own daughter, <laughs> Louisa. Ah. And as a result, problematic, problematic. As a result, he constantly negged her, even against her own sisters who, wow. who were uh, had fair hair and uh, lighter skin, and he kept extensive notes 
on all the like foibles and failings of everyone in his family. Wow. Definitely a fun Thanksgiving dinner guest. <laughs> God. Yes. And uh, so when Luisa was born, he was running this sort of progressive school, almost like think of like a Montessori school oh. of the early 1800s. Uh, at the time, most contemporary educators' stated goal was to, quote, break the will and subdue the spirit. Oh, my God. Okay, so, yeah, this is definitely, like, a way of schooling that's kind of still alive in some parts of the world, I feel like. Yeah, like New Jersey, where I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, you know, it, there's definitely something to be said about American public school in, in that sense. And it, it is weird uh, that the traditional concept of, like, you know, child rearing involves, like, strict, like, harsh, intense things. And nowadays you see, like, you know, I worked at a Quaker school at one point uh, when I was younger in Philadelphia, and their whole philosophy was, like, let them be kids for the rest <laughs> of their lives. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. a kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, but that's uh, that's one way to run a school. Yeah, so her, her father, uh, he's one of the founders of the original Transcendentalism Club, and he runs this school called the Temple School. And the focus there is on spiritual transcendence. Mm. For years, this school flourished, it grew, but then Louise's father enrolls a young black girl in the school, and he guess what happens. Oh, man. So the townspeople freak out? Every single parent pulls their kids out of the school. Oh, my and God. And the school, uh, as a result, has to close for, uh, you know, lack of tuition. It's just been, for a while, he's just educating this one, uh, I, I couldn't find her name, but young black woman and his own children. And, and ultimately, he can't get more people to enroll and the school closes. Man, it's America was <laughs> so, so racist. You know, I, I, I sometimes reflect that, you know, I, I've had the fortune of growing up in many different cultures, right? I grew up in Thailand. I'm from a Pakistani family. You know, I lived in the United States for 20-some years now. Uh, and I've gotten to travel a lot and experience a lot of different cultures, right? And believe you me, hatred, prejudice, it exists everywhere, right? Everywhere you go, there's one group of people that thinks this about another one and stereotypes them. But in all my experiences, I have never seen a deeper and denser hatred than the one that goes from white Americans to black Americans. It is so deep. It's something that has persisted for centuries and just is so, so vicious and malicious. I, I've, I've just never seen anything like it. Even like reasonable people were sending their kids to a, like, you know, the school run by a progressive kind of transcendentalist guy are still like, nope, no black people in my kids' class. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Of course, we see this racism as a driving force of the war against cannabis yes. in all its forms. Okay, so now the Alcott family is in really dire financial situation now. The school closes. They have no other incomes, got four kids. So they move to a utopian kind of commune community called Fruitlands, 
and they're going to try to live off the land. Wow. Another sort of transcendentalist value that we see reflected in modern utopian communities and and progressive ideas. It's like a, a commune. Yeah, it's basically it's what it is. It's an an idealistic commune, uh, utopian community. And where's this at? This is in Massachusetts. Right. So you know, any place with a harsh winter is a really hard place to live off the land. Yeah, seriously. Uh, and this becomes even harder when Luis's father. This is just funny. I, it's tragic to them, but <laughs> Luis's father suddenly decides food grown below the ground like carrots and potatoes, are bad for your soul. Oh, my God. Compared to crops grown in God's light. (laughs) Oh, my God. So these are like the staple crops of survival. Carrots, potatoes, you know. Onions. Yams, all this stuff. Out. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, uh, not surprisingly, that winter, the Fruitlands community has to disband and disperse to avoid literal starvation. That this guy is fucking nuts, man. That is absolutely crazy. And now I have to pause at one moment here and go back to the movie because uh, I went into the movie knowing this, and, right. and, and and none of this is really reflected. And you don't see her father in the movie until close sure. to the end, and then it's Bob Odenkirk. My little women. <laughs> You've grown. Yeah. And I'm on yeah, edibles. Right. And I'm a huge <laughs> Mr. Show fan. And just seeing Bob Odenkirk in period dress, I busted out laughing. I also was caught off guard by that. I have a hard time seeing Bob Odenkirk not as uh, either Bob from Mr. Show or Saul, you know? So it, it definitely, it, that was difficult. I thought it was cool that he had a cameo, and I, I definitely want Bob Odenkirk to act in more stuff because he's a great actor beyond just being, like, a funny person. Uh, but I couldn't handle it when I saw that. I was like, ah, look at that. <laughs> yeah, well, I did that, except in a theater full of, <laughs> you know, hardcore little women fan. Yeah. I got some turn, uh, some people definitely turned around and looked yeah, at, that's at me not, in the seat. It wasn't a moment to laugh at, really. No, there was no humor <laughs> in the moment whatsoever. It was actually a pretty harsh moment in the film. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't think people, you know, understood that my intense edibles uh, experience was in direct, uh, yeah. you know, and uh, also, tribute to this film. <laughs> yeah. And also, it's like, Bob Odenkirk has done these really silly Tim and Eric sketches and shit. You know what I mean? And it's like the kind of thing that, like, you see him being real serious in something, like, that's all you can think about. Yeah. You know? Like, for example, when I see Brian Cox in uh, Succession, and he's, like, this intense, serious character, sometimes I picture him in Super Troopers pissing (laughs) on the guy's door and going... (laughs) And he just came out as a weed guy. Yeah, shout out Brian Cox. Fucking legend and a weed person. Friend of the podcast. He said he started smoking weed at 50 and it completely changed his life. And and he's talking about it now because he wants to share that with everyone. And, you know, there's a chair for you, Brian. Yeah, that's incredible. I wonder if it was the Broken Lizard guys who got him (laughs) into it uh, when they did Super Troopers. I mean, is that around when he was 50? All right. Well, stay tuned. I think we're going to have to look into that for another time. But uh, let's go back to the 1830s. That's going to be a good one. Because we left the Alcots, you know. Now they've gone from uh, a failed business venture to near starvation on this failed utopian community. The carrots are probably just sitting in storage. No one's allowed (laughs) to eat them. Uh, And this is the moment 
Uh, and this is really beautifully portrayed in the film in a lot of ways, where Louisa decides, I've got to save this family. Because mm-hmm. uh, her father also decides after this, this closes, he's like, I just can never work for money again. What? Yes, he makes that decision. <laughs> oh my God, this I, I, guy. I gotta say, you know, bold. <laughs> so Louisa is a teenager at this point, I and mean, she's like, all right, I'm gonna have to be the one. So she takes jobs as a teacher, a seamstress, a governess, but all the while, she's working obsessively on her writing. Um, she's She's at first just trying to hone her craft, uh, but then when she's 17, she she finishes a book of short stories. It's called The Flower Fables. Uh, and she gets a few pieces published in the Atlantic Monthly, which is, of course, still around. Yeah, publication. wow. Uh, and then when the Civil War breaks out, she says, OK. And they were, you know, this was their cause as a family. Abolitionism, the end of slavery. Um, so she says, all right, I'm going to drop everything. I'm going to volunteer to be a nurse. Uh, she goes to the front lines and almost immediately she contracts typhoid. Oh, God. And she nearly dies. Oh, my God. For the rest of her life, she has really bad uh, spells of ill health. So this is something that that plagues her for the rest of her life. But she also got her first kind of uh, writing success financially writing something called Hospital Sketches, which is sort of like a pulpy memoir of her brief time at the front lines. And at the same time, she had written her first novel. It was called Moods. It was uh, a deeply personal coming-of-age uh, Roman clef. You know what that is? It's like a, it's a novel with a key is the translation. It's when you write about real people, but you change the names a little bit. Oh, okay, gotcha. So clearly this is a, a stylistic choice for her. Yeah, so this is her first novel, and I, I have an unpublished first novel in a, in a desk drawer somewhere that's all about me and people I knew, and I changed the names a little bit, and it went unpublished, and, and nobody liked it. And, this is, <laughs> and hers is about her adolescent infatuation with Henry David Thoreau. That's her teenage crush. Wow. Dude, that, that's who she had pinned up on her wall. <laughs> as a girl. It was the teen beat of the uh, <laughs> of the 19th century. And and she was like, he, she was one of the few people who he, but she was a kid. To him, she was a kid. Right. Uh, but he was known, of course, for taking all these walks in the woods by himself. And he would let her and her sisters come along sometimes and teach wow. them about nature. And she's sort of pining for him, and she writes this book, and nobody cares. Uh. (laughs) Nobody likes it. Nobody buys it. At the same time, this sort of sensationalistic article she wrote about being a nurse in the hospital during the Civil War gets traction. Uh, And so she just decides, all right, I'm going to focus on what she calls blood and thunder stories, which she yeah. writes under a pen name. Yeah, you know, sell what sells, as <laughs> they say. Uh, if you know, if you're putting out deeply personal stuff and it's it's not really hitting with people, but then you put out something like kind of sensational, and it hits. That's what you're gonna keep doing. Follow the opportunity. Yeah, and but the other thing is, she kind of really digs this. Uh, in her own words, she says. I think my natural ambition is actually for the lurid style. Hmm. But no matter what, 
Money is the end and aim of my mercenary existence. Whoa, thug life. Thug life. And that line is actually in the film. I recognize oh. because I had already had done this. You know, she took that line and put it in the film to really make you understand where this person is coming from. It's when she's talking to the uh, publisher. Trust me, if you decide to end your delightful book with your heroine a spinster, no one will buy it. It won't be worth printing. Well, I suppose marriage has always been an economic proposition, even in fiction. It's romance. <laughs> it's mercenary. Just end it that way, will you? Right, right, right. Yes. And of course, a lot of that is real. And Tracy some... Letts, great yeah. actor, yeah. So she's writing these sort of pulpy, sensationalistic stories. She's doing it under a pen name because her family is actually very well known in these intellectual circles. Right. So she wants this distance. But she then, under her own name, she gets another gig writing for a children's magazine called Mary's Museum. Interesting. But so she's she's really making it work as a writer. That, that's pretty impressive, uh, especially because for a woman in America at this time, there's like a lot of obstacles. I'll, uh, that 100%. And it's hard to make it as a writer anywhere, anytime. Yeah, as a white man. Anything, even. Yeah. I, I'm sure like that, you know, it's a struggle. It's definitely not a career you get into to make money. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways, it's got to be something that you're in for the passion. But it sounds like, she obviously does have a passion for it. Yeah, most definitely. And this is a sort of a golden age of, of the written word. It's the mass medium of the time. There's no TV. There's no radio. Yeah. So it is a if you're successful with it, it can it can be pretty lucrative. So then she's even though this switch to writing uh, children's literature, it, it leads to like obviously Little Women and her greatest public acclaim, and also that is one of the most profitable intellectual properties created in the 19th century. Wow. Between all the books sold and now the movies, obviously this is, you know, long yeah. past her time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and does she own the rights to all her stuff? Like she maintained control of the IP? Yes. And they, wow, they mentioned it in the movie. That scene is real where the guy's like, well, I'll buy out the IP if you and need money And she refuses. Right and she refuses. And that was like uh, the difference between hundreds and millions. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. As, as a guy who's created IP for <laughs> other places, you know, they end up owning it that, that, that becomes successful. You know, it, it definitely, I, I saw that and was like, Get it, girl. <laughs> you keep control of your IP. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're we're about to get to our little break, and after the break, this is gonna get very weedy. Oh yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> so far, this has been like uh, you know an episode of a film podcast. <laughs> well, you gotta you gotta roll the J before you smoke the J. Indeed. And our our J is just about rolled up. But yeah, uh, and who knew that this person of all people had a weed story like. You know, the, the, that's still, it, it blows my mind, and I'm not quite sure how it's going to happen. All right. Well, I just want to wrap it up with a little quote from her to, to put a bow on this with, the, with her children's literature. So she's writing all these, before Little Women, she's churning out a bunch of these pulpy blood and thunder stories and also these very sappy children's stories. Mm -hmm. And she said uh, at one point, I don't, she's hard as fuck. I'm just going to say, Lisa yeah. May Alcott's hard as fuck. Because <laughs> she said, I don't enjoy writing moral pap for the young. I do it because it pays. Whoa. <laughs> Yo, very, very gangster. Uh, yeah, 
That's pretty cool. So she's out there to stack cheddar. She is out there to stack cheddar, feed the family. It's all about the carrots. No shit. <laughs> and when we come back, we're going to dig into the weedy underbelly of the Louisa May Alcott cannon. Can't wait. Smoke weedia. All right, we are back and we're talking about Louisa May Alcott and we're just about to get into the weedy part of her story. Absolutely. So we we left her, you know, she's starting this writing career, but she's trying to support this whole family. Her father will not work. They the guy, are... he hates carrots. He hates potatoes. <laughs> and he hates cabbage, apparently, because this, this motherfucker won't work. Oh, my God. And she is, you know, struggling financially. She's sort of ailing physically from the from the uh, typhoid that she had. Right. And she decides, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to write a novel, enough with these short stories. And she pushes herself to the brink of madness while writing Little Women about wow. her real-life sisters. She even, remember I said she's hard as fuck? Yeah. She taught herself to write with both hands so she could switch off. Whoa. When one cramped. Whoa, <laughs> that is pretty hardcore. Yeah, well, she taught herself. She willed it. And then this is actually a little, you see it in the film. It's very subtle, but there's a scene where she's writing and she kind of rubs her head and she just moves oh, yeah. the pen. Oh, wow. <laughs> no shit. Okay, I didn't catch that. Uh, yeah, so uh, the that book came out in 1868 and it is uh, Little Women is an immediate bestseller. Yes, she kept the copyright, as we talked about, mm. and she becomes celebrated author. She's got tons of fans. And what happens is her publishers and her biographers and even the book reading public are all like, you're Joe. Right. You're not Louisa May Alcott. We want you to be just like Joe and nothing but Joe. Yeah, she got uh, stuck in that uh, George Costanza situation. <laughs> yeah, she was like, well, we, we can only see you as this character now. But she's pushing back against being like pigeonholed in this way because she's got all kinds of thoughts about all kinds of things. And one of the ways she found to push back was she keeps writing under a pen name. One of the stories that she wrote under her pen name was called Perilous Play, mm. and it is a jaunty little tale about a group of young society women who pass a most interesting afternoon and evening together by getting absolutely wrecked on hashish candy. Whoa! <laughs> Holy shit! So, seeing as she's the type of person who fictionalizes her real life, <laughs> it would figure that Louisa May Alcott, at some point, got very, very stoned on edibles with her friends. So one quick note. So Perilous Play was one of many sort of what they called scandalous stories mm -hmm. that she wrote, but they they were under pen names and they were never attributed to her in her lifetime. Ah. She did not. She wanted to keep the scandalous stories and the money funnel of her children's stories separate. But in 1942, a couple of rare book dealers were going through her papers, researching her life, and they uh, discovered that she wrote under this pen name, A.M. Barnard. So also probably trying to disguise the fact that she was a female writer yeah, right. to be taken more seriously, even under her scandalous name. 
And it turns out she was churning out these pretty profitable stories. She was getting a hundred bucks a piece for them, which is like two grand today. Wow, incredible. So she was like the Aphex twin of the <laughs> book world. She had all these pseudonyms under which she's putting out different styles of writing, and they're all very successful. Clearly, the the connecting fiber of it is that she's a really sick fucking writer. You know what I mean? Like she can adopt all these different styles, all these different personas and still just be really dope at all of them. Yeah, so we're gonna, I'm gonna read to you uh, from Perilous Play, but a few notes first. I wanna give a big shout out to Ellen Kopp, uh, who is an incredible cannabis activist, has been with California Normal a long time. She also wrote a book called Token Women, T-O-K-I-N. <laughs> That's a woman after my own heart, and, and, and a personal friend, a 4,000 year herstory. Uh, right. And and this is where I I found this research, and she's done an incredible job of. Uh, she has a website, Token Women. It's a great resource to find out more about uh, female cannabis figures from throughout history. And yeah, there is a lot of important female figures in cannabis history. They say that the Amazon, right, uh, the women of the Scythian tribes of the Central Asian steppe were voracious cannabis consumers. And these were like warrior women who used to ride around on horseback and carry around weed with them. When they were buried, you know, they would put a cannabis sacrament in their tombs. Uh, there's a lot of history there. Yeah, and speaking of history, another thing we should uh, note, referencing back to our episode about the Club de Hashishans, which was these French writers and intellectuals, Baudelaire, Balzac. Yeah, I remember. So that club was founded when Louisa May Alcott was 12. So oh, this is all happening at the same time. Those figures would have been a big inspiration to her as a writer, as an intellectual, and the fact that they were having these hashish parties right. uh, would definitely be on her mind. And then another really cool thing that I found uh, researching this, also at the same time, there was this company operating out of New York City. Now, you got to remember, cannabis is uh, legal. Yeah, yeah, of course. This is pre-prohibition. So... The prohibition of cannabis didn't begin until the early 20th century. So at this point, cannabis is pretty widespread and there are hemp-derived tonics and medicines. Step right up and give it a try. I will. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but there's this thing called the Gunjawala Hashish Company. Ooh, operating name. out of New York City. You can find from newspapers of the era... Their ads, there was even their ads in the Sears Roebuck catalog. I have an interesting factoid for you. So, Gunjawala, right, means the guy with weed. Whoa! Yeah, in Hindi. <laughs> so, wala is a, a word that you hear a lot attached with, like, you know, for example, if there's a guy who makes chai or delivers chai, he would be called the chai wala, which is like the chai guy, right? The word wala means like this one, kind of, right? Uh, it, a rough translation of, of it. So Gunja Walla, of course, is the Walla with the Gunja. Well, that's uh, probably the best Walla. Yeah. <laughs> also, the word Gunja means bald, and Gunja is cannabis. So, you know, make of that what you will. It could also be the bald guy. 
<laughs> well, I think when you throw hashish company on the end, <laughs> yeah. that's why they were like, oh, well, we don't want people to think this makes you go bald. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I'll read you from, uh, from these ads that were in the newspapers right at the era when Louise May Alcott is writing this story. Yeah. It says, uh, and this is that very in the step right up style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hashish candy, a most exhilarant confection, has been the theme of song and story among the Persians, Arabians, and Assyrians. It is a remedy that ought to be in every house on account of its harmlessness and potency, and above all, because of its exceeding cheapness. It is the cheapest remedy in the world. The writer, the speaker, the student, under its influence seem to gain a new inspiration, a new energy, and a readiness of perception unknown before. Wow, it just goes to show that pre-prohibition, they totally knew that cannabis was awesome. <laughs> you know, creative people have employed cannabis as like work fuel for centuries, right? And here, clearly, it was being advertised as such. And yet, not long after this, the airways would be filled with bullshit propaganda saying that cannabis is a poison. It's crazy to think about. Yeah, and you can really see how this ad would speak to Louisa May Alcott specifically. She yeah. already has this club to hashishans in mind. We have these great quotes from them talking about how it was creative fuel. Here's this ad, and it says, Sold by druggists everywhere, price $1 per box. And now I'm going to ask you to maybe settle in for story time. Oh, yeah, man. Let's do it. I'm going to light this thing back up. All right, and now I'm going to read to you from Perilous Play, uh, published in 1869 by A.M. Barnard, a.k.a. Louisa May Alcott. Yes, here we go. And, and remember, these are these four, like, society young women hanging out together on a day off. If someone does not propose a new and interesting amusement, I shall die of ennui said pretty Belle Daventry in a tone of despair. Wow, I love it. So this is like the gossip girl of like of that time. <laughs> so this is, the Belle goes on. I have read all my books, used up all my Berlin wools. Any idea? Berlin wools? I, I, I had to look it up. It's needlepoint. It's like uh -huh. a style of needlepoint. Huh. And it's too warm to go to town for more. No one can go sailing yet as the tide is out. We are all nearly tired to death of cards, croquet, and gossip. <laughs> Nailed that one. So what shall we do to while away this endless afternoon? Wow, uh, this is really pointing hard at something. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I'm so bored. Uh, what can I possibly do to lift this boredom? Uh, and then she says, Dr. Meredith, I command you to invent and propose a new game in five minutes. <laughs> so they're they're hanging out with this young doctor who's pretty, pretty chill as fuck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so five minutes later, uh, Dr. Meredith returns and he's got a little box of tortoise shell and gold. And Belle says, how mysterious, what is it? Let me see first. And she removes the cover of the box looking like an inquisitive child. And then she says, only bonbons, how stupid. That won't do, sir. We don't want to be fed with sugar plums. We demand to be amused. These bonbons are no mere bonbons. They are not mere bonbons, as the doctor informs her. He says, eat six of these despised bonbons and you will be amused in a new, delicious, and wonderful manner. 
Whoa. All right. Look, for anybody at home with a box of bonbons, start with one. <laughs> Just saying. He's like, don't eat six of weed anything to start. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Bell says, why? What are they? And the doctor says, hashish. Did you never hear of it? Oh, he's like too cool for school. Yeah. <laughs> the doctor is like, oh, you don't know what weed is? <laughs> Got a joint? And she says, oh, yes, it's that Indian stuff, which brings one fantastic visions, isn't it? I've always wanted to see and taste it, and now I will. Oh, I am so calling weed Indian stuff that brings fantastic visions from now on. <laughs> That's gonna, what's the acronym? I-S-T-B-F-V. <laughs> and then somebody, uh, one of these other society women says, I advise you not to try it. People do all sorts of queer things when they take it. Uh, this is a different yeah, context uh, version sure. of the word queer. I wouldn't for the world. But the doctor comes right back and he's like, six of these bonbons can do no harm. I give you my word. I take 20 before I enjoy myself. And some people take even more. Uh, Whoa. No idea how many milligrams in these in these cashews candies, unfortunately. Yeah, seriously. And I mean, I wonder how heavy the dose could be if he's eating 20. I mean, we'll just go along with the, yeah. go along for the ride, I guess. We won't know how strong these yeah. are. Yeah, and watch, it, this sounds like sponsored content from the Gunjawala <laughs> hash company. He's like, six, eat 20. <laughs> like, buy three boxes and eat them all. It's all good. It'll make you feel great. I've heard that the International Majun Company's products will, will make you very sick. Yeah. But these <laughs> are quite a healthy tonic remedy for all that ails you. <laughs> yeah, woman. step right up. So Belle says, well, how, how shall I feel if I eat these? And she's already eating her second one at this point. <laughs> so Belle's kind of hard as fuck. Yeah, and the bored as fuck. The doctor says a heavy dreaminess comes over over one, in which they move as if on air. Everything is calm and lovely to them. No pain, no care, no fear of anything. And while it lasts, one feels like an angel half asleep. Whoa, these descriptions are really selling the shit out of these bonbons, man. <laughs> Maybe this story was sponsored content. It really sounds like it, you know? <laughs> Eventually, about half of the women decide to to go for it and eat these bonbons. And among them is a woman named Rose, who is basically a stand-in for Louisa May Alcott in this story. Gotcha. Uh, she physically resembles her. Her attitude resembles her. It's kind of clearly her point of view in this story. Her avatar. Yeah. And so at the beginning, she's sitting there reading a book and kind of not paying attention, but she gets talked into eating these bonbons. At tea, the initiated you know, the ones who ate the bonbons, mm -hmm. glanced covertly at one another and saw or fancied they saw the effects of the hashish in a certain suppressed excitement of manner and unusually brilliant eyes. Okay, gotcha. So they're feeling it, in short. They're feeling it. And does that not ring true where you're just kind of like look over at your friend, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the, the funniest thing about it is that it's like your secret in this situation, right? Yeah, absolutely. So Belle laughed often throughout the tea, a silvery ringing laugh, pleasant to hear. But when complimented on her good spirits, she looked distressed and said she could not help her merriment. Whoa, interesting. <laughs> okay, so she's got a tinge of that paranoia. It is true that, you know, if you're real stoned and you're having a good time and somebody, like, points something out about you to you, 
it can be a little bit jarring, you know, because in that you, it, your yourself is in the process of melting at that point, you know. <laughs> yeah, the, the self conscious you've made conscious of yourself, you become self conscious. Yeah. You know, I've certainly been there. Yeah, and Meredith, one of the other women who ate the bonbons, was quite calm but rather dreamy. Evelyn was pale, and her next neighbor heard her heart beat. And then they're with this guy Norton, who seems a bit. Square. <laughs> so Norton talked incessantly, but as he uh, talked, he's that guy. He's that guy. But as he talked uncommonly well, no one suspected anything. Ah, see, and this actually goes back to something a, a friend of mine pointed out to me in high school when I was like, "Oh man, I'm stoned and I have to go home to dinner." Like, you know, I feel like I'm gonna act weird, and he's like, "You know, trying not to act weird makes you <laughs> act the weirdest." So if you just try to not hide it and just just be normal, no one's going to suspect a thing. It's your own self-consciousness about it that's going to make you seem stone. So in this situation, old Norton is uh is doing the right thing. He's doing the right thing and it reminded me of this Baudelaire quote, which I'm just I I I can't find the evidence, but I'm just sure that she was thinking of this hashish club. And Baudelaire said, it sometimes happens that people completely unsuited for wordplay will improvise an endless string of puns and wholly improbable idea relationships fit to outdo the ablest masters of this preposterous craft. Oh, wow. So he's he's totally on a rant. Yeah. And so she's kind of given these attributes to this character, Norton. He's the shy kind of pent up guy. He eats four to 12 of these sashish candies, and now he's regaling everybody at this tea with his hilarious wordplay. Wow, interesting. Again, it bodes well for these bonbons. Like, this, again, sounds like an ad for bonbons. Yeah, I just ordered some off Amazon. Like, well, yeah, fuck right? Amazon. I just ordered some <laughs> <laughs> direct-to-consumer. Um, but as things start to develop and the and the hash kicks in, the tea ends, everybody sort of scatters. I mean, it's a complicated story, but we end up with this character, Rose, who is basically Louisa May Alcott, mm -hmm. and this guy, Mark, that she's pretty into. They go out in a rowboat, but then a storm kicks up and the waves kick up and they're getting higher and higher on hashish. And all of a sudden the story becomes like an adventure tale of trying to like survive this storm out in a rowboat. Holy shit. Oh, my God. So this thing really takes a turn. They end up getting stoned and in a rowboat? Yeah, out in the fucking waves and stuff. And this is her style. This is her, quote, lurid style. These are, like, stories for people to get lost in adventure and, and wild circumstances. Right. I guess something would have to happen. It couldn't just end with them, like, falling asleep <laughs> on the couch, you know? No, no, well, life does imitate art sometimes. Yeah. Or art does imitate life sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So they're out in this rowboat, and Rose says, Oh, my God, are we in danger? Asked Rose, at last, unable to bear the silence, for Mark looked like a ghostly helmsman at the oars of this boat that is rocking in the in the waves. Holy he's just, shit. like, not doing anything. He's just frozen. <laughs> oh, my God, and in she, the clutch. And she's trying to be, you know, this is very Louisa May Alcott. She starts out trying to be kind of like this proper 19th century woman who would never say anything. And then finally, this dude's not saying or doing anything. And she's like, hey! You fucking idiot! <laughs> <laughs> and so Mark is like, uh, yes, we're in great danger. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so this is the perilous part. 
this is the perilous part. And she says, I thought you were a skilled boatman. And, and this all could be sexual, what do you call it, uh, undertones. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. That he's like, he's kind of stiff, doesn't know what he's doing. And she's like, I thought you'd be good at this. <laughs> and he says, I am a skilled boatman when I am myself. But now I am rapidly losing control of my will. If I had been alone, I should have given up already. But for your sake, I'll try. Whoa. Oh, my God. So this guy, you're supposed to get better at fucking when you're stoned. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's ridiculous. This guy might have had too many bonbons. He definitely had too many bonbons. And so Rose says, oh, heaven, what will become of us? Uh, she, turns, she turns to Mark and she's like, rouse yourself and listen to me. Turn and let us drift down to the lighthouse. They will hear and help us. Quick, take down the sail. Get out the oars and let's try to reach the lighthouse before this storm breaks. So she has to take control of the situation because this man is just failing to. And does she get them out of peril? Well, we'll see. And it certainly doesn't reflect at all about her father who gave up on trying to support the family at all and left them all to almost starve. It's ah. definitely not a reflection of that. <laughs> <laughs> and so he he just, you know, smartens up and just does what she says. And they finally are now kind of headed towards this lighthouse and Rose kind of catches her breath and she says to him, how much hashish did you take? Yeah. And and Mark says, too much. <laughs> <laughs> and he's peering at her with a weird laugh. So he's doing the like uh, reefer madness piano playing guy. <laughs> He's all jittery and shit. <laughs> yes. And then the storm completely broke loose. Rain fell in torrents. The wind blew fiercely. Sky and sea were black as ink, and the boat tossed from wave to wave, almost at their mercy. Giving herself up for lost, Rose crept to her lover's side and clung there, conscious only that they would bide together through the perils their own folly brought them. So, so they're clutching to each other for dear life at this point. Pretty romantic. Yeah, and this is about as sexy as you can get in print at the time. Right, right, right. So they they have this big moment. He admits that he loves her. She doesn't really say anything to that. She kind of Han Solo's him. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. I know. <laughs> wow, icy. Uh, yeah, and they get rescued by the lighthouse, and then they both pass out in a hash stupor. And the next day, they have to sail back in this boat, and it's kind of awkward. Awkward. That's definitely the awkward boat ride of shame <laughs> together back to the mainland. They sailed away with a fair wind, finding in the freshness of the morning a speedy cure for tired bodies and excited minds. Rose tried to compose herself for the scene to come, for as she approached the island, she saw Belle and her party waiting for them on the shore. Uh-oh, and they're like, what have you been up to? Yeah, some some judgmental bees <laughs> <laughs> waiting on the shore. <laughs> and of course, this is a time, you know, when any kind of sexual relations between unmarried people was quite a scandalous proposition. Very frowned upon. And so uh, Rose is in the boat and she's very concerned about this. She says to Mark, screen me from their eyes and questions as much as you can. I'm so worn out and nervous. I shall betray myself. 
You will help me, she says to him with a confiding look, strangely at variance with her usual calm self-possession. Right, so she's kind of losing it a little bit because, you know, she's about to have her reputation ruined. Or yeah, something. it's a very wake-up little Susie meets uh, hashish candy Yeah, moment. seriously. So Mark steps up. He's back to being Mark now. You know, right. He's, 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 he's solid. He says, I will shield you with my life if you will tell me why you took the hashish. And he's, he said, bent on knowing his fate. And, and he's, they're playing this little game because he said, I love you to her. And she soloed him. Yeah. <laughs> so, and she had been very resistant to taking the hashish, but she finally does. And she says, and this is straight Louisa May Alcott speaking through her character because she was someone who never got married. She had at least one romantic involvement that we know about, but she chose in her own words, like the life of a happy spinster. She doesn't want to, she has a hard time relating to other people on that level. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that comes up in the Greta Gerwig little women as well, in that she's like, I want to stand for these ideals of mine of being independent. But it's very lonely because you're going up against uh, this established kind of tradition. You know what I mean? And the two things can't exist together. You can't be your own woman and also be married to someone at this time. Yeah. And sort of the one passionate affair that she has that we know about was with a significantly younger man. And she sort of decides that's not going to be a way that I'm going to go in my life. And she somewhat pines for this, this lost love for the rest of her life. And, you know, watching her sisters get married and all of that was really in the film that, yeah, that she's chosen the hard life of the, of the, of the obsessive artist. Yeah, seriously. Very committed to her work. But so in, in getting back into this rowboat situation, Mark is asking this, like, leading question. Why Why did you eat the hashish? If you'll tell me that, I'll shield you with my life. Yeah. And she says, I hoped it would make me soft and lovable like other women. I'm wow. tired of being a lonely statue, she faltered, as if the truth was wrung from her by a power stronger than her will. Wow. Beautifully put. And definitely a sentiment that you see in the characters in Little Women as well, specifically in, in Joe March. I'm so sick of it, but I'm, I'm so lonely. It's interesting to think that she saw cannabis in its description from that doctor as a conduit to this, as being like, oh, it's like I want something to like, you know, make me more open or, you know, more accepting of affection or something like that. And perhaps it worked. No one knows what mm-hmm. happened, uh, you know, uh, in that cave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that is honestly something that I can, you know, not from the perspective of a woman of the 19th century, but from the perspective of somebody who was very guarded and very distant from people and had a lot of walls around myself as a younger person, that cannabis really did help me break through and open up to people and open up to experiences. And so I also want it to be soft and lovable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I I think that it does, in its purest form, being high does open you up in this way, I think. You know, that's a really beautiful sentiment. 
Yeah, and Mark Mark picks right up on this, and he says, I took hashish to gain courage to tell you of my love. We have been near death together. Now let us share life together, and neither of us be any more lonely or afraid. Oh, wow, look at that. So he's, like, trying to spin this into, like, a win. He's like, you know how you didn't like me that much before? <laughs> how about if I'm cool with weed? Like, how about that? Yeah, it just breaks down these barriers between them. These are two very repressed people in their ways and repressed times, and it's very hard to speak. It's always hard to speak those words of affection, especially if you don't know if you're going to get it back. Yeah, but Especially seriously. at this time period. So they've broken through that, and the perilous play and, and our, our weedy time with Louisa May Alcott with the very last line of the story. Mark stretched his hand to Rose with his heart in his face, and she gave him hers with a look of tender submission as he said ardently, Heaven bless hashish if it's dreams end like this. Brought to you by the Ganjawala Hash Company. (laughs) One dollar per box, available at druggists everywhere. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Wow. We've discovered it through this kind of really random way. It's like, oh, she wrote under a pseudonym. She did this story about how, you know, people get really high on hash candies. But clearly it shows that she probably had a real personal experience that's kind of parallel to this one. That is amazing. You know, you never really know what historical figure is going to have a really amazing cannabis story because very often those parts of people's lives are edited out of the history books, you know? Sometimes when you least expect it, one of your favorite authors, creators, artists, whatever, could be a cannabis person. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that story, Bean. Oh, my pleasure. Good stuff. Uh, And uh, I would just say, you know, uh, uh, the other lesson to take from this is one bonbon at a time. One bonbon at a time. And if you haven't had a chance to read Little Women or see any of the film iterations of Little Women, you should definitely check them out. I know Bean and I both really enjoyed Greta Gerwig's film. She should have gotten that Best Director (laughs) nomination. That's for goddamn sure. But yeah, that's it for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. We'll see you next time. Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, Abdullah Saeed, and David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. We're produced by Cody Hoffmockel and Brigham Mosley with help from Trey Jones, Reyes Mendoza, and Lee George. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. Special thanks to Haley Nelson, our researcher for this episode. Very special shout out to all our patrons on Patreon. Thanks to Gold Digger Studio. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at GMIWH Podcast on all platforms. Check out our show notes for links to our sponsors. Support us by supporting them. Thanks for listening. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at Great Moments in Weed History. Dot com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. 
Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout. 